Welcome to the Emerging Litigation Podcast, a co-production of HB Litigation and Critical Legal Content, custom content for law firms and litigation service providers, and the newly formed VLEX Fastcase, your world of legal intelligence, and our friends at Law Street Media. I'm your host, Tom Hagee, litigation content producer, an enthusiast, and an average bongo player. Contact me if you have an idea for an episode. In addition to often being polite, I'm always looking for new twists on the law, whether it's a new regulation, legislation, or an important new opinion. Or it could be a development in the world that will test existing law, or anything you're dying to share with other litigators, organizations, or individuals. And if you like what you hear, give us a rating. That always helps. And now, here's today's episode. What's gotten into corporations these days? Microsoft's committed to becoming carbon negative by 2030. Costco, and I love their pizza, by the way. They've reduced waste by 50% since 2000. That's the year 2000. Mattel, I'm talking to you, Barbie. I'm talking to you, Hot Wheels, aims to reduce its environmental impact and pledges to promote sustainable practices throughout its supply chain. Walmart requires its suppliers those in its supply chain, to meet ethical and environmental standards. Adidas wants to bring fitness programs to children before school. Starbucks is committed to paying all of its employees a living wage. Let's define living wage. Uh, So what's with companies inflicting all this positivity on us? We're talking about ESG, Environment, Safety, and Governance. You know this movement. Uh, with corporations to reduce their environmental impact and mitigate climate risks, improve their social performance and create a more inclusive workplace, strengthen their governance and build trust with stakeholders. We'll talk about who they are. Why do all this? Apparently, uh, doing the right things like this can attract and retain top talent. You can build stronger Relationships with customers and suppliers. You can mitigate risks and protect your reputation. ESG is also becoming increasingly important to investors. Corporations, how they operate, has a huge impact beyond the products and services they provide and the the profits they make, of course. Did I leave that out? The bigger the company, the bigger the impact. Often a company's impact is greater than that of some nations. But unlike nations, corporations' number one objective is money. We can argue about objectives two through 22, but money is number one. Of course, this raises questions about their impact on things like climate change, like greenhouse gas emissions and resource conservation and pollution, things like safe drinking water and biodiversity. Raises questions about promoting diversity in the workplace, equity and inclusion, providing fair wages and benefits, ensuring safe and healthy working conditions, providing for employee development and well-being, and engaging with the community, and, God forbid, addressing social needs. Then what about how companies and their employees and executives conduct themselves? Do they embrace ethical and responsible business practices? Do they protect shareholder rights? Are they being transparent? Are they holding themselves accountable? Do they have a strong board of directors or do members have conflicts of interest? Do they have effective risk management practices? Can they ask an endless list of questions without anyone answering them? When you think about companies, sometimes just to take a side trip, you think about uh, 
old Scrooge McDuck, which reminds me of inclusivity. I looked uh, looked up Scrooge McDuck uh, on Wikipedia. It says, Scrooge is a Scottish-born American anthropomorphic Peking duck. He's portrayed in animation as speaking with a Scottish accent. Isn't that some sort of stereotype? I think it might be. I'm not positive. I think I've heard a thing or two. I think that's probably the last thing the Scots are worried about. But uh, also, speaking of workplace safety, it's, uh, McDuck famously dives into a vat or pot of gold coins. According to the uh, publication Mental Floss, uh, they wrote, uh, quoting James, Ka- it's either Kakaleos or Kakaleos. I don't know. He's a PhD. He's a professor of physics at, uh, in Minnesota, and he wrote a book called The Physics of Everyday Things. The question really isn't whether someone could swim in a mass of gold, because these are the kind of questions people ask. Uh, they make it clear that, no, they could not swim in a pot of gold. And they go on to say it's more a matter of how badly they'll be injured in the attempt. So you see, we're talking about workplace safety now. So if you learn nothing else today, there's a takeaway for you. Maybe a more modern McDuck would be more ESG friendly because you'd see the advantages. Uh, like many uh, companies um, that have focused time, energy, and investments on their ESG initiatives, some of them adopted in response to pressure from key stakeholders, including boards, consumers, investors, insurers, the spouse of a board member. <laughs> you know, these things can happen. So, to discuss this in a serious way, no, it's not Scrooge McDuck. I know that uh, one day we'll we'll get him on. Listen to my interview with Kai Gray. Kai is CEO and co-founder of Motive, an ESG advisory and support services firm. We're going to explore how ESG and the legal profession interconnect, the key issues at the heart of these interconnections. And yes, there is a place for a focus on ESG in the legal arena. So legal professionals, I'm talking about the usual folks that we talk to, law firms and those in corporate legal departments would do themselves and the rest of us a favor to understand how law firms and can adopt ESG practices and encourage their, you know, work with their clients to do so. And, you know, why is this in their best interest? And uh, the firms and their clients to broaden their expertise and, if absolutely nothing else, mitigate potential legal risks associated with ESG programs. And yes, there are legal risks. We'll talk to Kai about what law firms themselves can do to adopt ESG practices. What are some common pitfalls they should avoid when navigating these regulations and standards? How in-house counsel can drive ESG initiatives within their organizations? And what's the role of in-house counsel in communicating ESG risks and opportunities to the C-suite and the boards? Any strategies that in-house counsel can employ to mitigate the legal risks associated with ESG disclosures. And then we will also talk about the supply chain. You want to hear more about Kai? Yeah, well, Kai has 20, uh, more than 20 years of uh, senior executive experience at some pretty innovative tech companies like Yahoo, Carbonite, and Western Digital. Kai leads the advisor and support service team at Motive in navigating this rapidly evolving frontier that is ESG. Let's get to it. Oh, I want to also mention, too, that Kai discusses the secret to the secret sauce of compelling corporations to do the right thing. So listen for it, and I'm not going to spoil it for you. 
So here is Kai Gray with Motive. I hope you enjoy it. Kai Gray, thank you very much for talking with me about this today. It's my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me on. Of course. Um, so we, uh, I've, I've introduced you and some of your background and some of the subject, but uh, l- let's dive into it. So one of the goals uh, that you expressed was that you want people to hear something about ESG, maybe that they didn't know. And we are going to legal markets, but that also includes in-house counsel and some of the professionals, as we discussed, that also work with ESG and you listed people like, uh, you know, the compliance group and finance and HR and folks like that. So, but let's talk about, you know, attorneys and, uh, and how they can, uh, and we can talk about law firms specifically too. How, how do they adopt ESG practices and tell, tell, um, sure. tell our uh, sure. attorney listeners, you know, what they need to know about this. Sure. Well, um, and if it's okay with you, you know, I, I'd love to start with just a quick sort of what ESG is, right? Just Perfect. for to sort of to level set the conversation, because I think that especially uh, in in today's news, ESG is a term that's thrown around um, without a lot of discussion about what it is, actually. It's become sort of a, a political hot potato. And I think that, you know, it's important to understand sort of the mechanism behind it. So environmental, social, and governance is what's considered a non-financial metric. And so it it really, it encompasses um, about 180 different individual metrics. Environmental has a set of metrics, social has a set of metrics, and governance has a set of metrics. Uh, And it's really designed not not to measure, quote unquote, good companies versus bad companies. It was designed as a level of transparency. It really is about disclosure. It is trying to put forward these metrics to allow investors to make very educated decisions. Now, people use this to make investments based on sort of their their values or their thesis or things like that. But it was never designed to say this is a a bad company. This is a good company. It's certainly, I think, taken on a bit of that role. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think one one of the dangers in ESG is is sort of the roll up number. So, you know, if you go to Yahoo Finance and go to sustainability, um, which is synonymous with ESG in, in today's world, um, you, you'll see numbers, you know, that this company gets a four or this company gets a, you know, an A plus or B plus or things like that, which is, in my opinion, sort of a dangerous thing because it's really trying to to roll up, you know, 50 or 60 different metrics into one digestible metric. And as we all know, that that's a very sort of difficult thing to do to capture this. And so what ESG data really looks at is, you know, you you have things on the environmental side, such as, um, you know, the obvious ones are like greenhouse gas emissions or your scope one, scope two, scope three. On the social side, it, it really has to do with workplace safety, the right to unionize, the amount of training that, that you provide employees. And then the governance side, which is probably the one that that is most understood by by companies at least are how well is the company being governed from a process perspective is there oversight is there you know are there independent board members are there minutes published or do you have to restate your earnings frequently you know the thing things like that i often talk about esg and sort of reverse it and talk about um uh governance environmental and social because 
when you talk about governance, it's very hard to argue about that. When you look at sort of the metrics that make up governance, you think, well, yeah, of course, like that's non-controversial. Of course, you want that in a company. And, and you know, I always argue if sort of Enron went through an ESG process, no one would ever buy their stock, right? It was right, all, right. Sort of, you know, all, all insiders. And so I think what what's really important is that ESG is made up of a wide array of, of metrics and when it comes to companies, whether it's law firms or the, the companies that law firms represent, it really has to do with materiality. When you look at 180 or 200 metrics, they're not all applicable to every company. They mm-hmm. are very much sort of dependent on the industry, dependent on the on the company. When people look at ESG scores, it's really important to put it into some sort of context, whether it's it's against their peers or sort of the broader industry, because y- y- you really can't compare sort of, let's say, a mining company with a tech company right? Or, or or a service business like a law firm or an accounting firm. They're very different businesses, and you would expect different things from, from each one of them. When you're talking to companies, you know, very common things, and, and, and I imagine sort of some of the, the people listening, if they're advising their companies, ha- have seen this where a company will come and say, okay, we 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 did a materiality assessment. And so we talked to our stakeholders and we talked to customers and we talked to sort of everyone we could. And we've come up with these 25 priority projects that we're going to work on. Mm-hmm. And they're all top priorities. And my suggestion to to people is to throw that away and say okay you know you you can't possibly address 25 things right you do have to make some decisions some they're not all weighted the same they're not all weighted the same right and it's sort of what are the things that move the needle for your company what are the four or five things that you can actually do that have that, that make a difference. And I'll give you a, a sort of a concrete example for a company that that we were advising where I went through this exact sort of process. Um, they they said, okay, here, you know, here's this sort of laundry list of things. And, you know, because everyone you ask will have a very different perspective on it. They said, we're, we're going to, you know, number one, we're, we're going to replace our fleet of vehicles with electric vehicles, which is a very admirable thing that's great and we said right. great. how many how many vehicles are you replacing they said we have 25 that's a huge capital expense and it's not actually going to make a huge difference because it's not sort of long haul vehicles this mm-hmm. is you know very, very much you know they're, they're actually not using a lot of, of fuel to begin with but if you took that capital and put it into employee training it'd make a huge difference. That was an example of a, a company that really had augured in on this idea that like everything needs to be electrified because that's, that is the right. sort of sort of current popular view of things. But the reality is like in their business, they're not talking about, you know, they're not an air transport company. It was a, a service business that had a small fleet of vehicles. They were about to make a very large capital commitment um, to something that wasn't really going to one help their business and if they just put that into like more training or more you know better benefits or things like that they they would both enhance their business quite a bit um which they've ended up doing which was great and make a better impact on their esg rating yeah no that makes total sense you know the the urge to do the right thing uh that's a fine that's a fine urge but then you also like you said you want to look at the impact and what's it going to cost you and, you know, would the money, in fact, be 
better spent somewhere else. That makes total sense. But I could see, you know, you can definitely see the, uh, you know, somebody feeling the pressure or wanting to do the right thing, you know, let's do the right thing right. for the environment. But, that's right. um, but, That's right. uh, and, but like you said, you know, there's just ways that you can have a bigger impact, uh, when you look at other, uh, other places to put that, those resources. So, um, you know, that's, that seems like a pitfall. So my next question is around what, what are the most common pitfalls that, uh, attorneys and the companies should avoid when navigating ESG regulations and standards? I would say the number one pitfall um, that that we see companies fall into, um, and those advising companies, is that there are there are a number of standards. Getting back a little bit to sort of the you know the, the ESG mechanisms, there's no governing body that says this is what you have to report on ESG. Um, so there's no one standard. There are there are actually multiple standards, and they're called. This is a, a various groups called standard setters. There's a lot of acronyms, but TCFD and 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 SASB and, and these different organizations that have come up with what they think is relevant for your for your industry. And they're they're all slightly different. There are these standards, and I would say SASB, TCFD, and and GRI are sort of the three big ones. On the other side, you have the ESG rating agencies, folks like MSCI, Standard and Poor's. There's there's a number of of rating agencies there. BESC is, a, is another big one. They're the ones that actually create the, the score for a company. So you have these two groups, the, the standard setters and the rating agencies. What's very interesting is they don't talk to each other. They're In fact, they're, they're not connected in any way. So just because you followed a standard to the, to the letter does not mean that it's going to help your ESG score. Because it's a different body that's doing it, and I would I think that the the pitfall we see companies fall into is just that where they say we you know we have followed GRI the GRI standard you know perfectly. Why are we still getting a low score? ISS is another big one that your listeners may, may be more familiar with. They are a rating agency, mm-hmm. and so. A lot of people, in fact, will, will come to us and say, you know, we followed this standard exactly. We did everything they said, and ISS is still giving us a bad score in this. Why is How that can that be? Because ISS actually doesn't care what GRI says. They have their own internal standard. Okay. Um, and, and so all the rating agencies maintain their own standard of what's material to a company. They don't publish that. This is their sort of proprietary algorithm. This is what make. This is why companies would buy their services and so, so on and so forth. And so I think that the there's a huge disconnect in the market between these two things, right? It's, it's almost sort of like uh, I'll make bad legal analogies here because I'm I'm not a lawyer, but you know if you had laws that said w- one thing and then um, and then the courts applied their own their own laws, but didn't tell you what those laws were. Right. They were just sort of a close approximation. That's kind of what happens in the ESG world. And so it leads to a massive amount of frustration. And so one thing that, you know, we advise companies, these standards are good. They're they're not bad, but go into it in this sort of a w- eyes wide open perspective where, where you understand that just because I'm following this does not guarantee me a great score. And I think for companies, it's important to when they begin their sort of ESG journey, so to speak, is that they have that they 
they have a goal in mind. This is this is something that I think is another big pitfall is that companies go into it saying, we're just going to do all these things. Right. Um, without first establishing what it is that they want to accomplish. Do they do they want high scores? Is is that because they want to get into uh an an ETF or a fund? maybe that that's the goal that's fine maybe it's because they're trying to be more attractive to certain customers that's why they want their scores or their ESG profile to be good but whatever the case is it always starts with that sort of that main objective and from there you can start to build your ESG program and i think a lot of companies you know pitfall number 1 again is that people get very frustrated because there's this disconnect between the standards and the rating agencies and and the other big pitfall is companies basically kind of start in the middle unlike every other project in a company where you set up the goal ESG for some reason a lot of people forget that and they say oh, no 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 we're just going to start doing a bunch of good things recycling bins in every office we're going to electrify all the cars and you know so on and so forth without establishing what it is that they're trying to accomplish with their ESG program. For your listeners, if you're advising companies, that's my advice to pass on. Step one, articulate the objective. Uh, the same with the same with any business project or yeah. program. Yeah. You know, it's like yeah. uh, you rarely start off with saying, I don't know, maybe you have a lofty mission for your company that you're going to do good in the world. But, um, but behind that, when you're an organization, sure, you got to know, okay, what... What is it we want right. to accomplish that's going to be good for the business and to and to fall in line here with the frustration with the different agencies? So what do you, first of all, what does it matter that you get good ratings? So the rating agencies are really designed around in, investors, mm -hmm. right? They, you know, so the rating agencies are selling their data to State Street Bank and Fidelity and, and the big financial folks. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of a lot of ETFs or, f or different funds are crafted using that data and and you know fund an ETF for instance will be built on you know the the top percentile of folks in a particular you know so if you go to um sort of BlackRock iShares for instance they use a lot of MSCI so you'll see MSCI something something fund which means that basically it's an iShares ETF that is the, the top 20% of a given category, um, whether it's environmental or, or whatever whatever it is. For a lot of companies, they say, no, 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 we, we want to be included in, in these funds because there's an instant stock valuation okay. increase when you, get, when you get included in those funds. It's really driven by a financial goal in mind. I think, and this is something we we see we see frequently is that, you know, sometimes the 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 rating is just it becomes almost a prideful thing for companies, right? Mm -hmm. If they get a low rating, it almost doesn't matter what what the goal is. It's like no, 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 we don't want to be low on anything. We don't want a C minus right. in anything. A lot of the times, what what we find is that when we ask companies who engage with us, they said, you know, why are you calling us? It's like, well. Um, a board member brought this up with our CEO in the last board meeting that, you know, our, our rating was low in this area. And it's like, okay, well, you know, wh why do you want to fix that? Because a board member brought it up and our CEO <laughs> does not want to go back into the next, you know, board meeting mm -hmm. without a plan. 
there's a lot of positive reasons that people come to us and, and financial reasons, but there's also a fair amount of just that sort of almost prideful, um, right. sure. You, you know, that, that you side scores it. across the board. Yeah. And you don't yeah. want a board yeah. member, uh, no. questioning, questioning you the, um, right. so I guess too, just to, just before we jump to the next one, yeah. sure. it sounds like the, there was so many rating agencies. Would you say then that, certain uh, if you're in certain industries you should go to you should try to uh, get good ratings with certain rating agencies or it's not as industry specific i think right. that you know you, you you basically have three big ones the iss msci and s&p global right um has a rating agency those three dominate the conversation okay. there are there are eight in total and there's I mean, there's probably 25 different rating agencies. I mean, even, even my my company maintains its own internal rating of of mm-hmm. companies. But I would say, for practical purposes, there are eight eight big ones, and among those, there's those three: MSCI, S and P Global, and ISS are the ones that, if if you were to focus on any three, those are the three. And for each each one, it's you know they're each distinct, and so there takes there's a little bit of research and trying to figure out like understanding how they rate ends up being important. Next one: How do, how do attorneys and um, and then executives inside companies how do they stay ahead of the curve and understanding these regulations? They they are evolving. So how do they stay ahead of the curve and understanding ESG regulations and investor expectations? There are a number of sources that you can go to without plugging our, ourselves too much. You can go to esgmotive.com. Like we, we have a newsletter we put out, sort of a client mm-hmm. advisory that does a wrap up of sort of monthly regulatory changes. And, and those are happening frequently. It's very dynamic right now. Like, like I said, there, there's not a, a governing body that, that regulates this. So that's not, there's no one-stop shop for, for all of your ESG updates. There is a, a rating agency called Arabesque, and they published something called the ESG book. Um, we we highly recommend it. They're um, we we like them as a company, and their ES, ESG book does put out also a sort of a, a regulatory update. We're going into an era where trying to stay current is very important. What's happening right now is that government bodies are starting to get very interested in ESG, and so we're starting to see whether it's the SEC, the the EU has taken the lead on this and and is probably a few years ahead of the US in terms of oversight and regulation. So the EU has crafted their uh, taxonomy to to define things, which is very important. And they're starting to sort of level fines for misuse um, of terms. And I think that that's coming to the US. I think the SEC is now starting to get very involved in in things and in what's being called uh what's known as greenwashing mm-hmm, where yep. you have companies that sort of are saying you know we do this and this and this because right now there's there's literally no liability in that um but that's quickly changing because california has has just passed through their legislature two bills concerning um climate disclosures governor newsom is has already said he's going to sign um, and and these put in place actual definitions and punitive measures for companies that don't abide by them. There's two separate bills, one addressing companies that that uh, earn over a billion dollars, and the other is um, concerning companies that own over 500 million. 
And what's interesting is sort of California, as we know, sort of what happens in California by and large affects the rest of the country because okay. it's basically if you do business in California, you're subject to these, right? So if you're if you're a five hundred million dollar company, which is a large company, but in our estimation, it's going to cover something like five thousand companies globally. Okay. So it's quite quite a large swath. You don't have to be domiciled in in California; just you have to do business in California. This means that you have to disclose a, quite a bit of of climate information. Let's let's move to in-house counsel and their role. So they're. The first thing is, how would you propose that in-house counsel drive ESG initiatives within their companies? This is something that comes up frequently because a number of our clients are in-house counsel. That is largely because ESG data is derived from public disclosure. So the, the rating agencies are are basically just sort of web scrapers. They're, they're looking for data on your company. And mostly they're looking at your public public disclosure. And that's why companies issue ESG reports or sustainability reports. For in-house counsel, a lot of times public disclosure sort of flows through them because now they're they're making public statements about things. And this is where the sort of the the merger of compliance and in-house counsel, you see this really come together, right? Mm -hmm. Because you, you cannot, you know, if you're a public company, you cannot be issuing disclosures that are not factual or that violates some some internal compliance. And so I think that for in-house counsel, we often see in-house counsel leading the ESG charge within a company, really because it has to do with public disclosure. Mm-hmm. And they want to make sure that what's being disclosed is is not um, exposing them, you know, in, in unforeseen ways. Um, and I think that it, it's an opportunity for in-house counsel because ESG is something that that really cuts across companies in every division. Um, and this is why, you know, the, there's a very healthy debate about within companies who, quote unquote, owns ESG. Marketing says, no, 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 this is, you know, these are, we produce the, these reports. This is really a marketing effort. Mm-hmm. Um, compliance says, no, no, these are, this is disclosure. This goes through us. IR and 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 finances. No, no, no. This is for investors. Mm-hmm. This goes mm-hmm. through us. You know, council says no. This is you know we we need to we need to check everything that that leaves this building. And so people always ask, well, who should own it? And the reality is, it depends on your company. Mm-hmm. But all, everyone. Oh, and a, another huge component is HR, right? Because a lot of a lot of ESG is run through HR because that was sort of. For a lot of companies, the very beginning of this idea of sustainability, it started with with diversity and inclusion. And so HR people kind of were leading the, the charge there. So I think what's interesting about ESG is one of it's one of a few things that touches almost every part of a business. For in-house counsel, I think the opportunity is to be able to sort of champion this within a company and sort of instantly be able to impact your entire company, not right. not just the legal part of your company, but, but the the sort of the business side of your company. Yeah, and you mentioned earlier the, uh, the example where a board member asked about a, a low rating, which yeah. which brings me to the next question: is talk about the role of in-house counsel in communicating ESG risks and opportunities to uh, the C-suite and to and to members of the board. I, I mean, I think that there's a lot of opportunity there. I think it's an opportunity, you know, the opportunity is really the the C-suite and the CEO and CFO in particular 
may not be well versed in ESG, right? Maybe you know, just like we talked about at the beginning, they they hear about it only in sort of news snippets and the occasional investor um, will bring bring it up if you're a public company and it's sort of an a, an investor call. Um, and I think that an area that that in-house counsel can can really help with is understanding ESG and really educating the C-suite on on what it means, and in particular, what it means for their business and how to drive business with it. What makes people come to you guys? What's very positive is that you have like a number of our clients come to us because they have received a request for ESG data from their their customers. They make widgets for a tier one customer. Um, and that customer has an ESG plan and is now pushing that down through their supply chain. It's a very, very common scenario. A lot of our clients are somewhat blindsided by this. They they come to us and say, hey, our, our very large customer who accounts for 30% of our revenue says we can't bid on new business unless we give them an ESG report. My advice to, to in-house counsel is try to, one, educate yourself on, on ESG and, and sort of what it means and what your customers care about and make sure that the C-suite understands this. Hey, this is, so it's not a situation where you're caught off guard and it's like, hey, we got to respond to an RFP in, in two weeks. So we need an ESG report today. That's a very, very, very tall, unachievable task. I think that this is an opportunity for in-house counsel to get on the business side of the company and sort of un- understand the who their big customers are. It's very easy. I mean, you know, you say, okay, we, we sell to, to Ford and GM and, and Slantis and all these other companies. Let's go look at their ESG reports and see what they care about because they are going to be coming to us, if not today, tomorrow, the next day, asking for data to support these initiatives. Get in front of this, be able to educate your your team, your your C-suite on this, and and know that you know your customers very likely will drive this for you. So let's talk about legal risks. Um, what strategies would you offer in-house counsel uh, to to lower the the legal risks associated with ESG disclosures? ESG disclosures have to be consistent with with, with your your business. Right, you know, we we talk about ESG as a as a business driver for companies. We we do not see it as an isolated activity. It it's within the context of your business, and and ultimately, ESG is like we talked about at the beginning, sort of a transparency metric. The way I personally look at ESG and for companies from an investment standpoint, I'm not giving invest investment advice here, but is if a company can produce a good ESG report with meaningful data and it's comprehensive, my take on that company is that they have a good sense of how they're run. It's that old sort of, you know, the the green M&Ms story from Van Halen from years ago, right? <laughs> you know, it, 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 if you can produce these kind of numbers, it means you understand your business. Talk about the risk of uh, being open and sharing all of this kind of information. Transparency is always something that comes with 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 a bit of risk for a company, and so you have to evaluate these and and sort of 
um, a case-by-case scenario, especially when you get into a lot of the social metrics, which have to do with workplace safety and and incident reporting and uh, cybersecurity and 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 things like that. You know, um, it, you know, companies by and large hate disclosing that kind of data. It's you know fraught with with all sorts of of you know landmines, and I think that. Um, it's important to ESG. You got to balance it if you're if you're in house counsel about sort of the competitive aspect of your business. We, you know, it it is definitely something that comes up where companies say, "Hey, we do all these things, but we don't want to talk about them." <laughs> right? We right. we you know we're we tend to be more secretive about everything, and you know, there's somewhat of an impasse. It's like, well, the rating agencies are not going to take into account you know, your desire to be secret about these things. So if you don't disclose them, it's going to go down as a not not disclosed, which is ultimately a negative on your ESG report. Yeah. So I think for in-house counsel, you just have to sort of understand that and, and maybe either prep people for that idea that, hey, we don't have to disclose this, but just know that it's not going to be a positive in our rating and we should be okay with that or lean into it. And say, yep. hey, we do a very good job with this stuff. Let's let's disclose it and evaluate the liability. So let's talk uh, finally about how in-house counsel, uh, how they should approach external partnerships and contracts from an ESG perspective. So assume your com- your company has established an ESG program. They've established objectives for that program. They they understand sort of the materiality. Um, issues. Now is a company's opportunity to start to bake those into their contracts with their partners. Communicate that upfront. Say, this is our ESG program. These are the things that we're trying to achieve. Here's our five things that we've we've narrowed it down to. We're asking our partners in our supply chain to comply with these. The wrong time to do that is after you sign the contract and you're your way down the the road with these folks and and which is kind of what's happening right now there's a lot of retrofitting going on meaning like a lot of folks are now going back to their supply chain saying oh by the way we need you to start doing this the business person in me says oh that's great because it's it it drives a lot of business from a customer supplier relationship it's not great and i think that companies need to start publicizing this and and bake it into into the contract that you are going to you know, these are milestones or these are some deliverables, the same as the other, the other things that, that you're calling out in the contract. It, it's not usually what the contract's about, but I think you want, you want your suppliers to maintain good human rights policy. It's going to reflect on you, who you work with, who your suppliers and partners are. I'm in uh, coastal Alabama. Mm-hmm. Um, so Alabama has a, a lot of auto manufacturing and, sure. and re- recently Hyundai, who has a plant in Alabama, one of their subcontractors, a very large subcontractor, was caught using underage labor. This was a huge, huge deal. And the news articles don't say subcontractor caught doing this. It says Hyundai right. subcontractor, right? Mm. And so Hyundai is now on a sort of a, a crusade to 
rid their supply chain of this because right. that, that is the last thing that they want to be associated with. So, you know, I always joke that they've canceled all bring your kids to work days um, for Hyundai for forever. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, this is, Any, anybody under five feet can't work here anymore. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that, that's, right, that's right. If you look young, you, you may not come here. These are very real world things. And, and, you know, I, I don't know what, what Hyundai's contracts with this, with their subcontractors are, but I can imagine that going forward, there's going to be a fairly hefty clause in there about yeah. what what happens, you know, and 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 the right. audits that have to be done and things like that. Right. I mean, there's a there's a reason sometimes that overseas labor is less expensive, you know, because they they may not have yes. all the same rules and norms that we have. But um, yeah, and this came up earlier this year in the in the Midwest, in the meatpacking industry, where they had underage workers working with hazardous chemicals and hazardous machinery, and there were fines. It's interesting. There's a whole sort of probably another topic on this, because I think, you know, a number of states have started to lower age restrictions on, right. on workers. So, so I think like, but it definitely gets into where in-house counsel is surely involved, because I guarantee in-house counsel for Hyundai is working overtime. I'll bet they are. Um, the better way to approach this is at the front end. You don't want to be on the cleanup crew. <laughs> that's, a good, that's a good button at the end of it. So. <laughs> Hi, Gray. Thank you very much for talking with me about this today. It was interesting. It's my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me on. That concludes this episode of the Emerging Litigation Podcast, a co-production of HB Litigation, Critical Legal Content, VLEX Fastcase, and our friends at Lost G Media. I'm Tom Hagee, your host, which would explain why I'm talking. Please feel free to reach out to me if you have ideas for a future episode. And don't hesitate to share this with clients, colleagues, friends, animals you may have left at home, teenagers you've irresponsibly left unsupervised, and certain classifications of fruits and vegetables. And if you feel so moved, please give us a rating. Those always help. Thank you for listening.